I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ishmael Darrow. Hey, Jesse. BuzzFeed social news editor. That's me. Are we cool, man? It's been a while. Yeah, we're cool. I'm back. Let's do this. Right on. We're going to talk about peak Justin, Justin at the UN, and we are going to talk about the walrus's owl rule and other matters concerning the uh, the unrelenting dumpster fire that is the walrus magazine. Can we say owl fucking on this podcast? Yes. Perfect. Welcome back. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Barbara Gowdy. Eugene Sitt, Laura Reed, Matt Stewart, Beth Close, Joey Taylor, Eugene Manning, and Zoe Michelle. Zoe, why did you decide to be awesome? The stories are important. The guests are insightful. Um, You're good at what you do. You're open to criticism of your mistakes. And unlike most podcast hosts I've encountered so far, you're not irritating as fuck. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Ishmael, I have some exciting news for you. I can't wait to hear it. FreshBooks, as you know, uh, is a product that I feel is very, very useful and effective and has a bunch of great features. But there's this thing that happens when you've been using a tool for a long time and they keep adding functionality that if you are like with them from the beginning and they add a tool, then you know, you're know you kind of like on this learning curve where like, oh great, they added that, that's where it goes. 
and I'm glad that it now has all this powerful functionality. But if then you are a newbie and you just joined and there's all this stuff that it can do, I think people in design call it feature bloat. I'm not saying FreshBooks has feature bloat. I never had trouble with it, but I only saw it from the eyes of somebody who was using it for a very long time. They have done a top to bottom redesign to make it much easier to navigate for new customers. I'm going to uh, take it for a spin and tell you all about it next week, but you can check out now on FreshBooks, brand new design of FreshBooks, which of course is a cloud accounting solution for freelancers and small businesses and entrepreneurs of every kind. Check it out if you need to do invoicing, if you need to do payroll, it, it is compatible with other tools and you can do that with it. You can do anything you need to as a small business person or freelancer. Freshbooks.com, 30-day free trial, no credit card required. You become a customer, tell them the Canada Land sent you. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. It's his first speech before the General Assembly, a chance for him to rebrand Canada as a progressive and inclusive country. It is his effort to rebrand Canada as a major player on the world stage. Win, fail, OMG, cute, sorry, and yes, 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 yes. So Justin went to New York. He did. Big trip. Big trip for Justin. <laughs> I want to talk about how this trip was covered. I think that it tells us a little bit about, I don't know, where we're at right now. BuzzFeed had good access. Yeah, I mean, he did a brief, you know, 15-minute sit-down. I didn't know this, but we actually apparently put in a request months ago, and they agreed to do it, but it was always going to be in New York because that's where our production facilities are. So I guess it lined up, and he did a brief, you know, fun interview with BuzzFeed. And he did uh, kind of a more BuzzFeedy like Buzz-shareable video as well. And the Canadian coverage was interesting because it's this, like, 
Canadian situation where our coverage is about what everybody else thinks about us. The CBC had an analysis piece by Matt Kwong. The headline was Rebranding Canada, Justin's Big Plans at the UN, in anticipation of the talk that he gave, and with headings like Everybody Likes Canada, and embedding an old Gerald Butts tweet about how when Stephen Harper addressed the UN in 2014, there was like nobody there. Mm -hmm. And there's a photo of all these empty seats. Of course, the same thing happened when Trudeau was there. The room was more or less empty. (laughs) I don't see a CBC piece about that. I think they tweeted about it. They tweeted about it. They also tweeted, and this was not analysis. This was a, a CBC tweet from their News Alerts account, CBC News Alert. Trudeau uses first UN speech to warn about politicians who exploit anxiety for personal gain. Mentions three times, seen as subtle jab at Trump. Mm-hmm. That seems like analysis to me within a news alert that there's these allusions to Trump, that people see this as an allusion to, to Trump. When uh, BuzzFeed's editor, Ben Smith, interviewed Trudeau, he tried to get him to talk about Trump, I think, w- with reference to Keystone, and then said, oh, I was warned that I wasn't going to get you to talk about Trump. But what, what is this desire to kind of create this contrast between Trudeau and Trump? It's like the media really wants to kind of put those two names in the same headline. Oh, totally. Well, I think, I don't think this is necessarily true, but Trudeau is being held up in a lot of quarters as the anti-Trump so when he's in New York, everybody just wants to ask him about Trump, but he's not stupid enough to wade into the U.S. election and potentially annoy somebody he'll have to work with. I mean, Trump probably won't win at this point, but, you know, there's a chance he would. So why would you think the prime minister would go to New York and start slagging one of the two candidates? It's absurd. I mean, he has said all kinds of things that, you know, I mean, it is analysis, but I don't think it's terribly deep analysis. It seems fairly obvious to me that comments Trudeau has made about the politics of division and the, and the poll and then, you know, he's dog whistling something there. You know, he is alluding to like, I'm from the progressive nice side. I'm not into these politics of division and racial division. I think he's talking about Trump. Sure. But I think everybody can hear what they want. You can say that he's talking about the Front National in France or uh, the Brexit forces in the UK or Trump. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because he's not criticizing them in any substantive way. It's really a branding exercise for him to say, I'm representative of the forces of tolerance, et cetera. He'll play into the optics game of Canada as a prop. Canada as like, oh God, we may end up with Trump as a president, but look at what this progressive country has. What a contrast. That serves him and suits his purposes Mm -hmm. and he'll gesture towards that, but won't actually say anything explicitly that like taint the relationship with America's next future possible president, God help us all, before it even happens. Like that seems to strike me as a bit of a tightrope, I guess. Yeah. And to be fair, I think he's doing something valuable, like just going to the UN and saying, we've welcomed refugees. We think this is something the world should do. I actually think that's quite valuable in hearing, no matter what the Boy Scout sort of uh, mentality is that goes into this, you know, Mr. Trudeau goes to New York. It is actually a positive thing that he's saying those things. But then in his UN speech, he was saying, you know, we're Canadians and we're here to help in his sort of breathy Trudeau voice. I think the tightrope is fast becoming, how much schmaltz can he get away with before people kind of tune him out? Oh, I think we've hit peak Justin. I think we're just about there. And and the polls say I'm dead wrong. And then, of course, our headlines are about the polls. There were headlines about Justin Trudeau at a historic peak of his uh, favorability ratings addresses the UN. So again, as if we were in an election cycle, we're getting stories about Trudeau about how popular he is. Not everywhere. I'm, uh, we've only been talking about BuzzFeed's coverage in the Canadian press. Here is what The Guardian had to say about this. is Martin Lukacs writing in The Guardian, not writing about the UN address, but writing about Justin Trudeau. Uh, headline is, Justin Trudeau's lofty rhetoric on First Nations, a cheap simulation of justice. 
This is just like, I think, to one reader, you know, a critical takedown piece, but to another reader, a simple comparison of the official platform with what has happened since. It's been a little while. We can actually look at some of these things now. A legal order issued to the liberals to end racial discrimination against indigenous children has been repeatedly ignored. Compensation for 16,000 individuals snatched from their homes and adopted by non-indigenous families in the 60s scoop opposed in court. And that historic budget for First Nations turned out most of the funds would flow only in 2020 after the next election. Not exactly the new relationship that Trudeau announced to rapturous international applause. The rift between the reality and the optics of this, if you want to read about that rift, if you want to read just like a straight up comparison of like what has been promised and what has been delivered, you got to read The Guardian for that. I think this might get to the heart of the Trudeau like branding strategy, though. There's actually often critical things written about Trudeau, both in Canada and increasingly maybe internationally. But he is fundamentally a video viral creature. And, you know, on video, it's always going to be him explaining quantum physics or declaring himself a feminist to anybody on the street who will listen. Or saying yes. Or or saying yes, as he did in the BuzzFeed video. (laughs) It's working for him here. I think that this is sort of like really forcing us to prioritize this like desperate hole in the Canadian soul of like this desperate need to be looked upon fondly by the world, which is just at complete odds with our ability to just like deal with our shit like grownups. Mm-hmm. We kind of can't have both. You're right, though, that we've hit peak Trudeau in the sort of viral Trudeau sense. The fall session starting now. It's going to be a year after the election. People have written, is the honeymoon over headlines for about a year now. Yeah. I think sooner or later that is going to have to come true and and whatever honeymoon he did have or still has, it's going to end and we're going to just treat him like any other politician and say, hey, what's going on with all these promises? You are right. It's not such a simple binary that we've only been doing the fawning stuff and not been doing the critical stuff. It's almost like they are increasingly existing in different universes, much like BuzzFeed itself has just put these things in different universes. BuzzFeed has really segregated its news from its viral buzz content in ways that there used to be blurring between the two of them. And I almost see that there's like a larger cultural thing happening where the sheer volume of the memeable stuff is just like so overpowering that what gets said in like a paragraph form using these processes of fact checking and persuasion and argument versus what happens with these memes and these shareables, it's not even a fair fight anymore. And you like, go ahead, write whatever critical takedown piece you want, write whatever thoroughly researched economist piece you want. It's the viral video on Facebook that everyone's going to watch. So who even gives a shit? I also don't think that's necessarily new, right? Entertainment and so-called hard news have always competed. I think it's only slightly new in that it's all sort of on the same platform, which is your phone and your your computer. It feels like we're seeing that bifurcation more, but I don't know if that's entirely new. It's not new, but I think it's it's crossed over, I think, what's happening. And I think you could almost look at like Trump and Trudeau are both really strong media personalities. They're, they're both, you know, what happened this week with the Jimmy Fallon thing and Trump. And like, these are people who are just stronger on camera than they are on the, in, the, in the printed word in many ways. And, and they're stronger in the way that they hit people emotionally than the kind of sense that they do. Like, it just seems like when you try to talk sense about Trump, you're just some poindexter in the corner and it's just, (laughs) you know, Jimmy Fallon be ruffling his hair and everything's okay. And uh, that same dynamic, you know, there's a flip side there with Trudeau. A lot of strength comes from that. Like, it's not like he won us over with the sheer force of his intellect and wit. I think his team is pretty smart about the stuff, but they're also operating in the universe that we're in, which is that, you know, something that can go viral and be shareable is just going to, you know, it's going to have more of an impact than the 
2,000 word feature about the Saudi arms deal. This is true. And uh, for those people who do read the news, there's more of it about this stuff. The BBC's Canada Bureau just launched. So I don't know, maybe somewhere between like the BBC and the Guardian, we can, like, the, if you want it. And I mean, the Post has been writing these kind of takedowns since Trudeau started, but like it, it always feels like it's coming from a bit of a different place there because that's just what they're going to do. So with the BBC and the Guardian, you know, they're doing better journalism about Canada than Canadian news orgs in many cases. And uh, I, for one, welcome our snooty new overlords. Of course, maybe we just pay attention to them because they're foreign. So it's part of the same problem. Oh, shit. This is the part of our show where we thank our second sponsor, ShipStation. For anybody who sells stuff on the internet, you know that it's a long game. It's a spread out game. It's a game where you got to sell anywhere you can. Amazon, Etsy, Shopify, and about a hundred other places, your own website. And it becomes a real chore figuring out who you owe what stuff to whom and shipping it to them. ShipStation is the solution for this problem. It plugs into all of your selling platforms. It sucks all the order data into one very easy to use app and mobile app. And it makes it quick and easy to create shipping labels. It figures out what your best shipping solution is for each order. And the labels that it spits out are compatible with Canada Post, UPS, FedEx, they will help you choose the right carrier to get the lowest rate for every package, and the reviews are amazing. A five out of five from Shopify users. It is the number one choice for online sellers. And a special offer for listeners of this show right now, you can try it out free for 30 days. Don't wait. Go to shipstation.ca, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Canada Land, that is shipstation.ca, and enter Canada Land for your special offer. Thanks, ShipStation. Okay, duly noted. Mini lightning round, Ishmael. I dare you. Okay, um, I'll start with the uh, CBC's reports this week, both in uh, the National and in the Fifth Estate, about these three Canadian citizens who were shipped to Syria and tortured there. And much like the case of Mahar Arar, it, it turns out that the Canadian authorities knew and were much more aware of it. And in fact, in this case, even maybe collaborated on the harsh interrogations, i.e. torture. So the CBC is doing really great work, and I think it's an important story, and I hope people pay attention to it. Duly noted. Okay, CBC also announced, President Hubert Lacroix announced the creation of a group they are calling Next Generation, an experimental space to be created by millennials and managed by millennials. So if about 15 to 20 people are going to be hired in Montreal, this is Radio Canada to start, but they might bring it out to, to CBC English if it works. And the idea is that these 15 to 20 young people will be experimenting with new ways to create and distribute news content. So this is millennials working on the news. The mandate is vague, but that is by design. Other than requiring adherence to journalistic principles, the group is being given few limits. My God. <laughs> and I, I think it sounds great. Sure. It's like an incubator. <laughs> It's like an incubator, and they like to boast that their content reaches so many millennials. They're so popular with millennials. They never quite say which content because CBC, for some inexplicable reason, is competing with you guys for shareable viral content, which is just – I can't fathom why a public broadcaster would be doing stuff like that. It seems like it's just a way to goose their millennial reach because they are realizing that millennials can't be reached by news content. So they're trying. I think it's great that they're trying. I think it's great that they seemingly are going to be actually giving power to the young people who they're hiring to try. My only fear about this is that it'll become a digital ghetto where they don't know what they're doing or what they're trying to do. And so if they have success, they won't even know it. I want to know, like, how do you know if this works? And if it works, will you scale it? Will you scale it up and will you, will you, will you make mm -hmm. this actually have an impact? Or, or is this just going to be one of those projects like Zed back in the day that withers and dies? But uh, huzzah to CBC for their um, millennial ghetto. Duly noted. I just want to talk about Vox.com everyone's favorite explainer site who set out to, quote, explain the news when they launched a few years ago. 
they really need to stop writing about Canada. It's embarrassing. <laughs> Every time they do, they, they just put their foot in their mouth. A few months ago, they wrote this thing based on a map somebody uploaded to Reddit. So they put out this blaring headline saying, Canada's huge, but most of it is completely uninhabitable. <laughs> Which is kind of a weird, almost like colonial mindset to like, you know, there's nothing here. Just, you know, do whatever you want with it. It, it was stupid and it was just also inaccurate. And this week, they put out a big feature about, you know, the alt-right or the far-right gaining power. And then, of course, the, the, there was something about Canada being like the counterexample. And I think the article said that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was, quote, a major anti-discrimination law. What? <laughs> That's like calling the Bill of Rights, you know, just a minor law about gun ownership. Right. The Vox just needs to stop. Duly noted. Viceland. Crickets. Is anyone watching Viceland? The UK ratings data is out for their debut. And what is their share of their coveted 16 to 35-year-old uh, intended demographic? The share is 0%. Yikes. 0%. Uh, they're saying it's about 5,500 people in Britain, okay? 5,500 people, which is actually below the number needed to actually have reliable results. Like, it might be 15,000, it might be zero people watching. This jibes with some of the early ratings data. They've done everything they can to stop ratings from being released. They have some weird thing with Nielsen where, like, they're getting as much time as possible before those ratings come out. But there's a different company that does ratings uh, that is also a respected metrics company that says that they're... American channel is getting about 60,000 regular mm -hmm. viewers, 60,000 in the United States, which uh, is about half as much as that channel got before it was Viceland. If all of this scales to Canada, a country that is roughly a tenth the size of the States, uh, I have no reason to believe that it's doing any better here than anywhere else. We're talking about like under 6,000 viewers for Viceland in Canada. So it's a TV channel. It's, I think, taken a lot of money from its partners with this promise that they could lure back millennials to the terrestrial television world. Mm -hmm. And unlike online, where a lot of work has been done in exposing the way that Vice kind of jukes the stats and brings in data from its partner sites that are not Vice branded to kind of boast that it's just a lot fuzzier doing metrics online. And Vice has always been able to, to, to talk a big game about their online numbers. But TV ratings, it's just like apples to apples. There's a third-party auditing company that tells you who's watching a station and who isn't. And if Vice is a house of cards, I think that we may be seeing one of those cards at, uh, I don't know if it's at the bottom level of that house of cards, but like maybe level two or something. It's a load-bearing card. A load-bearing card. <laughs> Uh, might have just gotten a little nudge. Duly noted. All right, we're going to talk about the owl fucking at the walrus. No owls uh, have been fucked or uh, abused in the construction of this segment or anything at the walrus to my knowledge, but there was a piece of fiction about owl fucking that uh, seems to be consequential and is having reverberations. But before we get there, we have to talk about this Stephen Galloway story. Stephen Galloway, the head of the creative writing department at UBC, who was fired amid allegations of sexual impropriety. There was a feature in The Walrus about this. The credibility and the accuracy of it was attacked by sources within the story. And in fact, one of the anonymous sources in the story mm -hmm. shed her anonymity to say, hi, I'm the person known as Allison in this story, and I don't need my anonymity anymore, or rather I'm willing to forego my anonymity to publicly point out that what I said was misrepresented in the story, and the story is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. This is every reporter's nightmare, right? To have your sources publicly attack your work. 
But it seems somewhat consequential that, you know, somebody's willing to do that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, let's be clear. Like, it's not great if all of your sources feel like the story came out exactly right. You're not the agent of your sources. So it's frequent that a source will feel that a journalist misrepresented the story in some way. But here we're talking about like actual technical points of the reporting. One of the two sources who spoke out said, you have me witnessing something that I never witnessed. Mm -hmm. And that was corrected. So that was regarded as like, yes, we got that wrong. And there was another point where the source who is referred to in the story as Allison, but who revealed herself to be Andrea Bennett says, I was not paraphrased accurately. You got me in here saying that I don't feel like Stephen Galloway ever acted inappropriately. And then she presented what she actually said in an exchange with the fact checker of the walrus. Right. She shared a screenshot of the email and it sure seems like that's not what she was trying to get across. Yeah. There's certainly enough nuance in what she was saying that, you know, you could kind of say like, well, was she saying it was appropriate or inappropriate? But the actual line in the piece was that she said that he didn't do anything inappropriate. She never seems to have said that. And, um, look, There are mistakes. One of those seems like technical, one of them, you know, a bit less so, but everybody makes mistakes. And this is like a moment that is of such consequence when you publish a story of any kind. When somebody raises their hand and says, I know about the story, I'm in that story and you got it wrong. Even though that's a nightmare for a journalist and even though your first impulse might be like, shut up, shut up. The way you act from that point forward is much more important than how you acted previously, because there's an assumption of good faith. Like up till that point, you may have gotten some things wrong. Journalists will get things wrong. But the assumption is you were trying to tell an accurate story. Mm -hmm. But now what happens is we're going to see what you do when somebody tells you that you did not write an accurate story. Do you care? You are now an interested player in this drama. You're not just the teller of the story. You're now a journalist whose career might be on the line, whose credibility might be on the line. So are you more interested in protecting your credibility or are you more interested in actually finding out whether you got anything right or wrong? In this case, the writer of the story, Carrie Gold, her immediate response when one of these sources said you got it wrong was to say, leave me alone and take this up with my editor. Hmm. And later she blocked these women who were criticizing her story. And it seems her editor, Carmine Starnino, who, uh, full disclosure, I I know a little bit and I'm on friendly terms with, he blocked them as well. And I don't know why, but it it ain't a good look. You're talking on social media? On social media. Yeah. On Twitter. He blocked them. And this is after, like, you know, the real response to somebody who points out an inaccuracy. And they did point out at least two inaccuracies in the story, which the walrus corrected. You say, thank you. Like, we actually want to have the most accurate story we can, so thank you. But instead it was like, I've technologically inhibited you from communicating with me any further (laughs) publicly. Well, I mean, but it might be worth just stepping back to look at what the story actually is. Mm -hmm. I read it and the story itself is difficult because there are accusations that are never fully made public. There's no specific instances that are laid out like this is what happened with this person. So the story is sort of like writing around this lack of information and saying, isn't this an odd case that a popular professor's career ended based on these allegations, and all the university will say is that there was a breach of trust. And yet they brought in a retired judge to do a review, and they found most of the charges except for one unsubstantiated. So I feel like the story itself is about, you know, this post-Gameshi world where you take accusations seriously, but then, you know, how how far do you take them? So the story itself is actually kind of difficult to read because you're not sure what is being left out. That's true. But the same problem that plagues the UBC investigation of Stephen Galloway plagues the story itself. The story, which I think is fairly sympathetic to Stephen Galloway, 
writes about how the university contracted this former judge, did this extensive report, but the university never released the report. Mm -hmm. And so on the basis of this report, they fired Galloway, but it's all a secret crucible, possibly a kangaroo court, everything's a secret. And then Carrie Gold, the author, reveals, though it's never been released, I read the report Mm -hmm. and I found that the report exonerates Galloway of all but one charge. So in a sense, she's asking us to do the same thing UBC is asking us to do. Uh, UBC is saying, trust us, we've read the report and there's enough in there to fire Stephen Galloway. And she's saying, well, trust me, I've read the report and there's enough in there to say that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have fired him. In either case, we don't know what's in the report. Exactly. So the story itself is kind of strange, but then to have uh, sources say, this isn't right, or I was fundamentally mischaracterized in, in what I said. Essentially, to say that a source of yours says that this professor never acted inappropriately, and then for that source to say, actually, I said that there was a whole lot of stuff that was troubling, nothing that was you know on its own a fireable offense maybe, but I think uh, Andrea Bennett was describing a pattern of behavior that would at least be a red flag. So you're right, it's sort of an information vacuum, and then the story itself has that information vacuum. But then to have your sources come out and say, the story where you're asking us to, to sort of take it on faith is flawed. Honestly, I don't even know what to make of it at this point. Yeah, you've got a story with in an information vacuum that itself has been shown to have inconsistencies and is challenged by its own sources. And then that, of course, once you find a problem with one fact, that draws uh, credibility questions over the whole thing. And, and then what are we left with here? There are all kinds of weird things in that, including I found worth noting within that story is this reference to this very public feud that Stephen Galloway had with Barbara Kay mm-hmm. about a young adult novel winning a bunch of government money when Barbara Kay thought it was too filthy and she didn't like her taxpayer money going towards this filthy novel and Stephen Galloway standing up for it. And Barbara Kay is the mother of the editor-in-chief of The Walrus. Like, it just sits so strangely. And then I can't, like, how how much can we separate This story about sexual impropriety allegations, perhaps sexual assault allegations, don't really know, against Stephen Galloway and the walrus Mm -hmm. from the walrus's continued role. Like we did a bunch of stories about young female interns being bullied and harassed, not sexually, at the walrus during the whole Ravina Olak thing. Jonathan Kay writing a piece like, show us the suicide note. Like there's sort of this ongoing mounting history of them just showing bad judgment and – insensitivity around some of these delicate stories that increasingly are part of the public conversation. Like there's always ethical weirdness in the background, be it these sources calling problems with the story or the sort of unresolved question of like, did Jonathan Kay actually prove that we have any right to reveal all like suicide note? And I, I like all this stuff always feels unsettled with me and, and part of some as yet undefined mm-hmm. larger narrative about, about the walrus. Well, I mean, I think there's stumbling into this stuff, you know? I just want to make two points. The reason we care about The Walrus isn't that it is the most widely read magazine in the country. It's that we like to think that we have a prestige magazine that does the kind of work that you can point to in the same way that you can point to, say, The New Yorker or Vanity Fair. You know, It's for lack of a better option. Like It's just like that's what we got. You know, So right. when you talk about, as we're about to talk about, the literary community, I mean, that's the other thing that you can't d- distinguish this from is The Walrus is writing about this scandal within the literary community of Canada. The Walrus is the only national magazine, I think, glossy magazine. Is that true? That's like actually involved in publishing short fiction? And, and uh, like, does anybody else do that anymore? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Yeah. But but it's a prestige magazine. It yeah. thinks of itself as such. And it's sort of like the only game in town for that kind of stuff. So I think we all just want to hold them to a higher standard. And I think sometimes it's unclear to people sort of on the outside 
why Canadian media people care about the walrus this much. Yeah. I think that's it. They have sort of a self-declared or maybe imagined sense of uh, prestige that I think we all just kind of want them to live up to. Yeah, I I think that as much as there's a lot of sniping about it, and there's so many people who have gripes and personal experiences with them that were bad, which in a rare case of uh, nothing to disclose, I don't have any problem with walrus. You know, beyond that kind of petty side of things, like, yeah, it would be good if it was good. Mm -hmm. It would be good if that original thing they said they were going to be way back when, when they said, we are going to publish better stuff than everybody else and pay more money than anybody else. We think that we can play in the big leagues, which never really panned out. It would be great if that were true. So I think a lot of the the reason why it's such a frequent topic of conversation is, is comes from like a, like hopefully a good place, but like, well, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about wh- why their fiction editor quit or why he said he quit. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, so this is mostly based on a report in the Globe and Mail. Right. Where um, Nick Mount, who was the fiction editor, who was also uh, an academic, he announced he was resigning because of a new family-friendly regime that, according to his letter, was going to hamper his ability to run any decent fiction. So, you know, it was done. And and apparently the way this all started was a story by Stephen Marsh in the January-February issue, which was a story about a young man who wanted to fuck wildlife. <laughs> and spoiler alert, it ends with him fucking an owl yeah. to death. And, you know, I read the story. Right. I have no real opinion about its quality, but it is what it is. But apparently that... It is what it is, is never not a judgment <laughs> on, a, on something's quality, but, but proceed. I think that's all you can say about owl fucking. It is what it is. So apparently the Stephen Marsh story led to some internal considerations where an unofficial owl rule was put in place to just kind of make things not as weird and gross if it need not be. And apparently this rubbed uh, Nick Mount the wrong way and he quit. What he claims is that the owl rule was about making stories in the walrus family friendly. And in that Globe story, there's no response from Jonathan Kay. Uh, mm-hmm. The walrus does not say anything in their defense. Later, I'm reading Facebook. And as I mentioned earlier, Carmine Sternino, editor there, is a Facebook friend. And he puts a public post up that I think anybody could see. I'd like to confirm that the recent Globe story is complete bunk. There is no family-friendly push. Why would a general interest magazine that invests hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on risky investigative reporting, my eyebrow raised there, decide to water down its fiction? which is at least a decent question of whether or not it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So essentially what came out of this is that um, the walrus says this is just not true. We do not have a family-friendly fiction rule. That's not true. Mm-hmm. And then uh, authors and various friends of Carmine's and connections of Carmine started to question him, why are you doing this here? Why did John Kay not respond? And he said, well, they emailed John, the Globe Mail that is, who thought the whole thing was too laughable to deserve a reply. Big mistake. Mm-hmm. Then John Kay jumps in and says, it is absolutely true that we should have replied immediately to media queries about this issue. This is like DCOM John Kay. I regret that we didn't do so, but it was not my call to make. So there's some tension there between Carmine saying that John Kay just laughed off the whole thing. Here, John Kay is saying, my hands were tied. Essentially, this ongoing feud between John Kay and Shelley Ambrose, the publisher, John is saying, I should have responded to the Globe, but I was not allowed to. Mm-hmm. So the publisher, uh, assumedly, you know, saying, don't respond to the Globe, which is a very stupid thing to do, not just because it resulted in this Globe and Mail story that made the Walrus look bad, but the Globe and Mail reporter then called the board of directors of the Walrus. Right. You know, why are you guys censoring fiction? There is a counter narrative swirling around that Nick Mount is full of shit, Mm -hmm. that uh, really what this is about is that uh, he liked to publish a very short list of his buddies, dudes who like to write like edgy- Transgressive sort of stuff. Transgressive stuff. 
And uh, the publisher just said enough of this, that it was more of an aesthetic decision. It was an editorial decision to publish different kinds of fiction by different people. And that, like, it's not censorship to say not every story needs to be about these transgressive, edgy sexual themes just for its own sake, which I will admit I have not read Stephen's owl fucking story. It's a long one. So I, I, I won't speak to whether or not the owl fucking was – whether he earned it in the story or whether it was gratuitous. You know, I don't know. I can't say. All I can say about this all – is that this kind of thing doesn't usually happen in intellectual literary magazine circles, okay? Mm -hmm. And it usually doesn't happen this frequently. We reported earlier about story theft at The Walrus, uh, a freelancer feeling that, that their story was stolen and rewritten by another author, which uh, like The Walrus basically apologized for. These public feuds between editor and publisher, the literary community of Canada, like completely turning on this thing. Like this is a mess unlike I'm aware of ever seeing anywhere with an enterprise like this. Mm -hmm. And it just keeps happening. There's just like one after the next. I'm sure the walrus, like every other corner of the media, is going through various challenges right now. But it does seem like there's a lot coming out of their shop, which honestly I have no real insight into. I just wonder, what do you have to gain when a Globe and Mail reporter reaches out to you and says, here's some like pretty serious allegations of censorship or what have you, and to, quote, laugh it off, and then later to snark, as John Kay did on Twitter, that if you have a single-source story, call the Globe and Mail. It's like, well, you know they reached out to you, right? <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. I, if you want to run a closed shop, fine, but then you might look bad. Just play ball. Jesus. We all just want the walrus to be good. Just <laughs> do it. They tried a strategy. It sometimes works. Sometimes you can stop something from getting published by just not responding. But tough shit. It didn't work. The story went ahead. Now you got to fight it out on your Facebook page. It's your mm -hmm. fault. Oh, and just one final point. The, the Facebook post from the editor who said, here we go again. Those viral clickbait headlines about the walrus's fiction section. Are you kidding me? This is something that really bugs me because as somebody who's in the click game yeah. as you know a writer at BuzzFeed clicks are pretty worthless it's pretty much dogma now whenever somebody reads a story they don't like or they feel isn't fair to them their first instinct often is to just say here we go again those clickbait sites come on there's like a thousand people in the country who even care about the walrus and two of them are in this room you would have to get everybody who cares vaguely about the walrus to Tell everybody they know mm -hmm. that this is a really consequential story. With a lot of background about what the walrus is. With a lot of background to make like $125 in clicks. Stop accusing people of, you know, clickbait and viral schemes when really you just read a story you didn't like. Ishmael, thank you very much. Thank you. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Ishmael, where are you? Uh, I'm at BuzzFeed, and all complaints should be sent to Craig Silverman at buzzfeed.com. Yes, all complaints about CanadaLand should be sent there as well. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Kevin Sexton, and Canada Land is syndicated for free. We just give it away to community and campus radio stations across this country. That is handled by Russell Gragg. Hey, tomorrow is Not Sorry, our incredibly funny newsletter. Subscribe to that if you haven't already. You will not regret that decision. If you like what we do, please support us.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.